This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Jason, of course, U.S. and Chinese officials, they did wrap up high-level trade talks today, but they did lack a deal um, in terms of a final completion of a deal. So let's get into this, because we did see the president boost tariffs on about $200 billion in goods from China, and he did threaten to impose more. Stefan Selig, Selig excuse me, is managing partner at Bridge Park Advisors. He's former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce during the Obama administration. He's on the phone in New York City. Also with us, Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter at Bloomberg News. He's in our 991 studio in the nation's capital. Stefan, I want to start with you. How do you see it? How do you see the week in terms of the U.S. and Chinese? You know, I keep trying to figure out, is this posturing or is there really kind of contentious feelings between the two sides? Well, I think uh, clearly, Carol, um, the market um, and observers were caught by surprise because you'll recall after the last round of negotiations in Beijing, uh, Secretary Mnuchin um, made some very positive comments and, in fact, said we were in the final lapse, to use the um, phrase that um, uh, he chose in uh, our trade negotiations. So I thought folks were um, expecting that we would be much closer to a deal. Um, it does seem that there were um, some uh, surprises and last-minute wrinkles that the president described as um, backtracking, which led to the $200 billion of uh, increased tariffs that were uh, enacted um, in the middle of the night last night, and obviously this new threat of uh, increasing um, tariffs or imposing tariffs, rather, uh, at that 25% level on another $325 billion of Chinese products, would base, which would basically be all of the exports um, that China sends uh, to the United States. And so, uh, Sean, Donnan, come on in here. You've been tracking the minute-by-minute minute, uh, of this. As we go into the weekend, what's the exact state of play, and what should we expect next from each of these sides? Well, the most important message we're getting out of both sides today is that uh, neither of them wants these talks to break down. They're they're uh, insisting that they're going to continue talking, that we've heard uh, Secretary Mnuchin uh, talk about uh, constructive talks uh, this week. But there's a real tension between those public utterances and what we're hearing about what's going on in private. And that is that over the past week, there has been a real breakdown in the negotiations with the Chinese really pulling back on a wide range of, of commitments that they'd made, really kind of how firmly they were willing to, 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 to live up to the reforms, whether they were willing to enshrine them in Chinese law, which is what the Trump administration was pushing for. And, um, and uh, that when Liu He landed yesterday, he arrived with no meaningful concessions. They, they kind of tried to sell this idea that maybe they could uh, enshrine some of these things through state council directives. Uh, we're told the U.S. rejected that and um, that Liu He is ha- getting on a plane this afternoon to go back to Beijing with right. this kind of uh, U.S. ultimatum that there's more tariffs to come if we don't get to a deal. 
Hey, Stefan, how do you see it, though? Are either of the sides being unreasonable? And I also do wonder if what's going on, what we're seeing in these negotiations is representative of the new world order. It's not China, the developing economy. It's China, who's now got a very big role in the global economy and is also looking to be a lot more. You know, look, Carol, I don't think either side is necessarily being unreasonable. What I do think is the original timetable that the administration set out to get to the end of this in that 90-day period that came out of um, the Mar-a-Lago um, meetings was, was very unrealistic. and was unrealistic because these issues are both broad and complex. And uh, I do believe that we are going to get to a deal, but that deal, whatever it is, is not going to be a panacea. And it's not going to be a panacea because... China is a non-market economy uh, competing in a world and with the United States, which is a market economy. And the changes that they are going to make are not going to be significant enough to um, get to um, what we would consider to be a real market economy. And so uh, while I do expect um, there is a deal and a deal that both sides will be able to claim victory around um, and will address some very important issues I think the volatility and the challenging commercial relationship that we have with China is going to continue for the foreseeable future. And Stefan, just one last question for you. At the end of the day, yes, you worked in the State Department, but I knew you as a deal maker. You're a Wall Street guy. How are investors, and maybe more importantly, CEOs, what are they making of all this? Are people making specific business decisions at this point, in your estimation, based on where we are or where we may be? Only got about 40 seconds. Well, I would say that um, what people are doing um, is possibly delaying investments um, that would be directly impacted Um, by uh, these tariffs and a potential trade war. I think the market is largely discounting Mm -hmm. the likelihood of a significant escalation here. And so while you'll continue to see volatility in daily trading like you see this week, uh, Jason, I do not believe that um, either this is going to have a – this is not going to have a very significant impact on the U.S. economy going forward. And as a result of that, I don't think corporate behavior and deal making is likely to be um, uh, impacted. Right. Uh, that being said, um, you know this is these are a complex set of issues, and right. as we've seen from our president and our administration, uh, anything can happen. Stefan, <laughs> thank you so much. That's so true. Stefan Selig, he's managing partner at Bridge Park Advisors, joining us on the phone in New York. Sean Donnan, our senior trade reporter at Bloomberg News from our 991 studio. Check him out on Twitter at s Donnan. This is Bloomberg Radio. These are the days. for Uber Technologies. Ten years old gets its day as a public company, but the stock is down. It is uh, falling in its trading debut. So let's get into it. Uh, here are some thoughts. We've got uh, Shira Ovaday, technology columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And earlier, down at the uh, floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Down at the floor of the Stock Exchange, our own Emily Chang was in town, made her way across the country to catch up with Uber's CEO. Here's what he had to say. Profitability is a very significant priority for us. Listen, the great companies of the world can grow, but they can grow off of a base of their internal capital, so to speak. And that is absolutely goal for us. We don't want to be dependent on public markets for capital. This was important. This was a very important capital raise for us. But believe me, we believe that our business can and should be profitable over time. 
can and should be profitable over time, Shira Oviday. What do you make of that? Because investors, they're a little, as they say, skeptimistic. Can I just say to everybody who's listening to us on radio, Shira's face is just <laughs> priceless. <laughs> I mean, that all sounds good. We should make money. That sounds like an awesome goal. Um, the fact is, Uber last year had an operating loss of $3 billion. That's a lot of money to lose. Um, and I should say that, look, the, the question that has always dogged Uber and Lyft for the last few years is, can they generate profits? That's been a big question mark. And now my question is also, how big can these companies really get? Because if you look at both Lyft and particularly Uber, the core business of you know facilitating rides and cars, the growth in that business seems to be almost gone. That if you look at Uber's financial forecast, the total value of fares that they expect uh, expected to book in the first quarter might actually be down slightly year over year. The so total look, value of the the fares, yes, what they call bookings, yeah. which is basically the total amount of uh, collective fares yeah. that people um, people spend wow. on Uber. So it's kind of like car a revenue number, right? It, it's not a revenue number because they don't keep the full value of those fares. Okay. Right? Remember oh, the drivers right, right. make the majority of right. that money. Um, but it shows you, right, that Uber is now a large company, and it, but it's in this weird position where it's somehow both t- so mature that it's not growing anymore in its core business, and it's losing $3 billion in, in operating losses. So we have companies, okay, I'm not comparing Apple to Uber, but right, we have companies where their business slows down, but they're still making a ton of money. So it's hard to say, not a great business because they're bringing a lot of money. Can Uber get to that point where... Yeah, exactly. Because I don't. What I don't understand is we all love Uber and Lyft. We all. I was away just for a day. Like you use it a lot, and so I'm trying to understand what's wrong with the business dynamics. Is it going to take driverless cars for it to be profitable? I, like I, I don't know, and I don't know either. I think that's a great question. Look, there are lots of lots of services and products that I like to use and that you might like to use, but it doesn't mean they're good businesses. Yeah, fair right? enough. <laughs> right. And in fact, they they may be great services because they're bad businesses. Right. And I just think you can make an argument either way uh, about Uber. We just don't have enough information to know for sure if, you know, project out five years, they're at a place where they can bring down insurance costs, which is, um, you know, a big cost there. They can bring down the cost of rides or get people into onto bikes, bikes and scooters more. Mm. Mm-hmm. which are lower-cost trips um, that may be more viable for people who may not be able to afford it, don't want to take a trip across town for $30 or something here in New York. Um, so, you know, you can sketch out a scenario where the, certainly the, the ride business for Uber becomes nicely profitable, but equally I could sketch out a scenario where it, it doesn't. Well, and, and one of the comparisons that people inevitably make, Shira, and you know this better than anyone is – Amazon lost money for tons of years before it became profitable. And now look how how amazing it is. And Jeff Bezos, richest man in the world, et cetera, et cetera. But the difference seems to be that Amazon for a long time, and correct me if I'm wrong, was deliberately uh, unprofitable. You know, that it, that it made some choices that once it flipped certain switches, it could get to where it needed to be. That doesn't seem to be the case with Uber, right? Am I missing something? No, you're not missing anything. So something happens in my brain when companies compare themselves to Amazon, yeah. like a whole bunch of brain cells die. <laughs> um, let's stipulate that 99.999% of companies are not Amazon. Yes. 
nor are 99.9% and never will be never will be nor are 99.99% of of CEOs uh, not Jeff Bezos Um, it's one thing that's worth mentioning is that the scale of Amazon's losses uh, at least relative to today's cash burning companies is pretty minor I know this seems weird but even at kind of the peak year of losses for Amazon in in that sort of 99-2000 period still relatively minor losses and this was a company that you could see this. You could sketch they out the scenario. They were growing revenues too, they're, weren't they? They were growing revenues, and then also you could make make the leap from selling books to selling other yes. kind yeah. of physical goods, and it's a lot harder to make that case for Uber. I love that ninety nine point nine percent, folks. You're not going to be Amazon, estimate. and you're not going to be Jeff Bezos. Just get over That's it. A bumper sticker, Shira Oveday. You're the best. You're better than ninety nine point nine percent of everyone else. We always enjoy Indeed. catching up with you. Agreed. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. One of our favorite stories, I think, this week in the magazine is Boeing. There's been so much written about it, but a lot of questions at least remained for me about, well, what was underneath all of this? And this story answers a lot of that. Right. Here's a company that renowned for its engineering culture. Well, how did it end up in such a tailspin, especially with that 737 Max? It is in the feature section of the magazine. It's on newsstands now and at Bloomberg.com. Reporter Peter Robeson joins us from Seattle, where, of course, Boeing is based, along with our Business Week editor, Joel Weber. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Joel, I want to start with you because I think about the Boeing story has been an ongoing one. And I did wonder when you guys were going to kind of do your take on it in the magazine. And you did it. Well, we did it on the cover a couple weeks ago as uh, the 737 MAX stuff really came to a fever pitch. And and Peter had a, a good idea around then to start digging into the engineering side of the equation, which is this story is the culmination of that. And I think it's, it's, it's one that I think uh, a lot of companies can probably identify with, which was this relentless cost-cutting downward pressure to, to really make the company's bottom line look great. And along the way, it also seems like maybe some engineering corners that should have been observed may have been better adhered to. And that's really what Peter's story is about. And so, Peter, come on in here, because one of the things you did with this story that really broke new ground was you talked to some of those engineers. You talked to some of the, the managers who were there and watching this all happen. What did you hear? Yeah, I've, I've, um, I've been in Seattle a long time. And, and during that time, there, there's always been grumbling uh, among the engineers at Boeing that, you know, the old Boeing is gone, that, you know, the engineering culture they remember had, had shifted. And um, there hadn't really seemed to be any concrete fallout from that. And um, now that you have the two max crashes in five months, you have engineers, you know, who, who wouldn't ordinarily have spoken out publicly who were who doing just that. And they're saying that you have to look at these groups that were producing the max and you have to look at the, the pressure they were under to, to hold the line on costs and to execute layoffs, even though the number of planes they were producing was, was going up. And, uh, one, you know, one of the engineers we talked with mentioned that his managers had, uh, had, had insisted that any designs they came up for with the MAX, uh, they, they came up with for the MAX, had, had to not allow simulator training for the pilots, which, which he felt, you know, limited them and, and, and made them cut corners, as, as Joel said. That's right. And, and Peter, the, uh, the anecdote that you got that I thought was so illuminating was instead of uh, being able to uh, get ready for the, the, the max in the simulator, they actually convinced FAA that they could do it with the iPad instead, right? 
that that yeah that they they um, even before the the max was certified they brought uh, the the FAA officials over to their simulator and started asking questions would would this be level D which which is the level that rises to the simulator so which would be more FAA expensive didn't tip its hand at that time the, the FAA knew that that was of great interest to Boeing Peter so that part of the in- inquiries will be you know how did the FAA respond did did they respond to that pressure. Peter, what's cool about this story and having you do it specifically is you've been following this company for a long, long time. You know, what's the the Boeing of today very different from the Boeing of yesterday? Yeah, and and the the uh, it, it keeps coming back to this purchase that Boeing made of McDonnell Douglas, which is a long time ago, 1997, but. Um, it was in about 1999 and 2000 that the McDonnell Douglas culture really took hold, and the McDonnell Douglas culture was more about shareholder value. And as it was described to me, uh, it, it was the, the McDonnell Douglas people were, were sort of like the, the killer assassin hitmen of business, and the Boeing managers were the Boy Scouts. And th- this McDonnell Douglas a- approach of, of valuing shareholder value uh, really took hold. Well, and, and Peter, I want to go back to something you said about the FAA because one of the questions that's going to go forward from this is what are the role of regulators? Where does the line between regulation and self-regulation and assessment and certification begin and end between these companies and the federal government here in the United States and other governments for that matter? That, that's going to be of great interest, and because the change that that came into uh, play in 2009 was that it's it's actually Boeing that directly manages and supervises the the engineers uh, who are authorized by the FAA to to certify the planes. So that's that's going to be a key question. And the other question is, can, can these planes continue to be certified as just updates of a previous design? And 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 one analyst is saying that if if that system has changed, it could add one to two years to the development timeline, which is a long time. For sure. And right, it, would, right. it would make planes be and more costly. expensive. Um, but, yeah. you know, Carol, you, you phrased a question that I thought was really interesting with of what's changed at Boeing. But, Peter, one thing that hasn't changed is sort of the the relationship between the company and labor. Can you talk about that relationship? Yeah, that, that relationship has been strained for a long time and especially strained, again, since this McDonnell Douglas merger. Uh, there had been strikes by Boeing's machinists. Uh, before that, um, but but after that merger, there were strikes by engineers as well, and the engineers have never quite regained their trust of, of the company. And uh, Boeing did try to, to change its relationship with its unions in part by opening a new plant in South Carolina, which gave it some leverage with the machinists. But that opened up other problems because multiple people have claimed that the workers in that plant are not as skilled, and that uh, the managers have pressed them, you know, to not report defects up the chain. And uh, so, so Boeing has, in, in, by responding to this pressure that it feels to, to manage the relationship with the union, it, it opened up this other set of problems. The, the factoid that I loved, um, to quote from the story, one curiosity about Boeing is that even its white-collar workforce is unionized. So part of this tension right. is actually between yeah. a, a company whose workers are unionized and and the company that's actually trying to have that downward pressure on costs. But what's the division between like between the white-collar workers and the, and the labor uh, force versus the blue-collar ones? And Only Peter about 30 got, seconds. Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing is that both of them say the same thing. They, they both say that there, there's pressure on schedule and costs above all else. Yeah. 
and uh, and, it, and as we say in the story, one engineer is quoted as saying in the story, it was engineering that would have to bend. Right, but it's kind of timely because they're getting ready to do a new iteration of the triple seven, which is, you know, similar to the idea of what they did with the seven thirty seven. So, most important thing about the story is that they're trying to basically use the same procedure that they use for the yeah. Max on right. this next jet. This is why it's a really timely story. All right, going to leave it there. Joel Weber, of course, editor of Bloomberg Business Week in our interactive broker studio in New York. Peter Robeson, projects and investigation reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from Seattle. And by the way, Jason, thank you for correcting me. Boeing is based in Chicago, used to be in Seattle. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. We're on vacation, having lots of fun. So let's talk a little bit about vacation. Uh, our next guest in our weekly look at venture capital is a vacation rental and management company, Vacasa. Vacasa. Uh, Vacasa. I did that. You say Vacasa, I say Vacasa. But you know who says Vacasa? <laughs> Eric Brion, because he's the founder and the CEO. Eric, we were just going back and forth with that just before we started, so forgive me. Uh, it is Vacasa, and I'm glad you got it right there. Uh, my <laughs> wife actually came up with that name, and it's uh, it's one of the most important parts about it to her. So, all right, your uh, co-founder. Thanks for getting it right there. No, your co-founder and CEO of the company. You're on the phone from Portland, Oregon. Tell us, just for those who might not be in the know, tell us about um, what you guys are doing at Vacasa. Yeah, I'll start with just a little bit of background on the industry. So, everybody is very familiar these days with vacation rentals, largely thanks to Airbnb, VRBO, and others. But when you think about the people who own those homes and that are staying in those homes, in most cases, they're not really looking for that peer-to-peer experience. If you own a second home, you just want to know you're making great money and that it's being taken care of. Likewise, if you're a customer, you just want to know that everything's as promised and there's somebody that takes care of you if, if something does go wrong. And that's really what Vacasa does. Uh, we work between the guests and the owners, taking care of all the homes that we manage, doing all the things like marketing them, setting the perfect rate and the like to, to get as much revenue as possible for the homeowners but also being there with our local staff to take care of those homes and to take care of those guests. And so I, I want to drill down a level, uh, Eric, because I do want to understand on, on behalf of myself and, and our listeners, like what, how you do line up with the, the RBOs and the Airbnbs and, and whatnot. Cause I, as I understand you're sort of integrated into there, but help us differentiate. We are. So we manage 13,000 homes, and all of the bookings on those homes go directly through us, and we take care of each of those homes. Uh, We have over 3,000 employees spread throughout all of our markets that are actually doing everything from cleaning to to the maintenance and and helping the guests when those guests do need support. On the booking side, uh, we do a lot of our bookings directly through our own site, Vacasa.com, but we also do a lot of bookings with our partners, HomeAway, Airbnb, Booking. if people are looking there, we want our homes to be found because we're really looking to drive the best possible revenue for our homeowners. And we, we do want to point out that you just closed a Series B funding uh, round. I think it was $64 million, So you've now uh, raised uh, more than $207 million. I am curious about the metrics here. Certainly in a, in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year where we've seen a lot of tech unicorns come to the market. And I think we are all looking at this sharing economy and trying to understand what the financial metrics are for sustainability as a business. Give me an idea as much as you can share um, in terms of what kind of top and bottom line growth are you guys seeing? And what are the key metrics that you really do follow to determine whether or not you're seeing the kind of growth that you're hoping for? Yeah, really, we really look at both the net revenue that we produce for our homeowners as well as for ourselves. Uh, we're growing very quickly. We're, we're growing at over 60% year over year in terms of revenue. Uh, that's growth we've seen since we founded. And we have a lot of growth ahead of us. It's a, 
a giant market that we're in. Vacation rentals are a $32 billion market in the U.S., well over $100 billion globally. And there's nobody really dominant at what we do. So, so we're really excited to, to fill that position. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about is this interior design program that you've launched. Because, you know, I, I think all of us and many people who are listening, you know, they go on, you search. And, and a lot of the decision you make is based on those pictures of, can I see myself uh, in that house? And sometimes you see uh, some pictures, and you're like, mm, that looks a little down at heel or that looks a little uh, outdated. Tell us about that program. Yeah, when we first started Vacasa about 10 years ago, people seemed to think that the appropriate furnishings for their vacation home was the old living room set from their primary home. Right. It is really so not. <laughs> they, they just dumped their old furniture there. But now that vacation rentals have become such a great investment, people are looking to invest in upgrades to help their home perform better. So rather than being an expensive furnishing that vacation home, it's a way to drive better returns. Uh, and we use data to figure out where we can drive the most return. There are certain homes where updates aren't going to drive much value. You know, maybe it's a short season and it books out anyway, but there's other homes where, hey, there's great year-round demand if your home looks better and has better reviews than the others. So we use data to find those best homes, and then we help the owners update them. Uh, the other side of it that we're really excited about is with our real estate side. At Vacasa, we're just starting to get into the real estate side of the businesses. There's mm-hmm. so many people that want to invest in vacation rentals, But historically, the information on what a good return is on a vacation rental has just been lacking. Right. And Uh, you know, it's it's, it's interesting. Go ahead. Oh, we just match up the information between, you know, what homes are for sale and how much are they going for with the vacation rental potential. So we can actually help people search for the home they're looking for based on cap rate, which is first in our space. Well, I'm hearing more and more people who are going into retirement thinking about, let me do maybe some kind of rental or vacation rental yeah. home that I can rent out, and that's a source of income for them. Uh, Eric, thank you so much. Eric Bion, he's co-founder and chief executive officer of Vacasa on the phone from Portland, Oregon. Fascinating stuff. It's such a booming market. I feel like how much yeah. the world has changed just in the past few years in terms of how we look to where we're going to stay when we go on vacation. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Friday. Oliver Porsche is chief market strategist at Bruderman Asset Management. It's a firm that has over $1.5 billion in assets under management. Joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, New York. Nice to have you back. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Well, so interesting week. I don't know. How do you? How should we look at this week as an investor? Um, U.S.-China trade talks kind of freaked out investors. We saw a pullback. We haven't seen this in some time. Worst week for stocks uh, this year. Uber. Uber disappointment yeah. in terms of the I, IPO. I mean, so we put out a note to clients on Monday morning after you know the weekend tweet from President Trump that effectively said before the selling started. Before the selling started, but the futures were already pointing down yeah. uh, sharply, and we we effectively said, look, this changes nothing in our investment thesis. To us, this is more about politics and positioning by President Trump to his base. And at the end of the day, we never thought for a moment that we were going to see a trade deal by the end of this week. So this is positioning. We know 
know that President Trump likes things to be about President Trump. So this is him being able to say the reason we didn't get a trade deal is because I pulled the plug, not because China went back and changed things. So he pulled the plug. He got to be in control. Well, if you feel that way and you're making investments, why, though, then did the market sell off? If if people understand... So, first of all, not everybody has my view. No, no, no. (laughs) But I I, I hear what you're saying, and I think a lot of people are like, well, that's... Well, that's so what he does. I, I think that if you look at all the news in aggregate and don't just focus on the trade talks, which have c- captured the headlines, mm-hmm. you had some mixed economic news. You had some mixed earnings. You're at all-time highs or near all-time highs for the market. And having a 3%, 2-3% correction, you know, while it looks violent because the numbers are big, is nothing abnormal at all. S&P still up 15% this year. Yeah, exactly. Which, if I told you on January 1 that by mid-May we're going to be up 15%, you would have looked at me like I'm crazy. Right. And so where do we go from here, given that we have maybe slightly less uncertainty in the sense that at least they're continuing to talk? We were talking just before you came into the studio about how now this may start to trickle into hitting consumers a little bit in terms mm-hmm. of things that they right. buy a, on a regular basis. How soon until you get worried either from a consumer spending perspective or f- from a corporate perspective that this is actually starting to play through to results? Yeah, so, so typically speaking, we would think that based on a tariff increase like the one that we saw happen and, or become effective today, it probably takes a good three months or so okay. for corporations to start passing those costs over to uh, consumers on a they broad don't basis. Want to. They don't want to, right. right? So they're hoping that a deal gets struck sooner rather than later, and they're willing to wait. I think it's also important to say the economy, the U.S. economy in particular, is relatively strong right now. You have record low unemployment. So while certain industries and individuals are going to be impacted negatively, on a broad basis, we can take the hit because it's going to be a pretty small hit and probably a short-lived one, or at least that's what everybody's hoping for. Um, with regards to where things go now, I think we kind of stay in a trading range. We're going to see some volatility that's going to be driven by headlines. Mm-hmm. To me, if you're invested today and you're happy with your portfolio, there's no reason to change based on anything that happened this week or last. And there's also no reason to rush in if you have a whole lot of cash on the sidelines. So if an investor comes to you and they've got a, bunk- a bunch of money that they want to put to work, what, what do you do with it right now in this environment? Well, so, I mean, there's opportunities and there's certainly segments and companies that we like. And do think you like the at- equity markets or is we like, Yeah, else? so we prefer lo- U.S. large cap equities still have the best risk return profile out of any uh, asset class out there in our view. And so if you're looking to be a longer term investor, which obviously is what you should be if you're buying stocks, uh, you want to be in large cap U.S. equities in our view. Specifically, we like growth stocks that have strong balance sheets are taking market share away from their competitors and continue to improve their margins. So those are kind of the thematic uh, uh, plays that we want to go after. Uh, a name that's very popular and widely known out there is Visa, as yeah. an example. It's a big yeah. holding in our portfolios. But it's the leader in uh, payment processing, both debit cards and online payments. You know, that's a category killer. That's what you want to own when things are slowing down globally, when there's some uncertainty but you want to stay invested because overall things are still good. Right. Another name you like, which I'm intrigued by, is Agilent. That's a name yeah. that's been around for for a long, long time. time. It's ebbed and flowed. Yeah, it's <laughs> to, ebbed to and say flowed. The least. But why do you like it now? Um, well, it continues to perform well on a fundamental basis. They're growing. They're, uh, they have a strong balance sheet, as I said before. They're taking market share. They're improving margins. Um, so they're doing all the things that we believe over the next two to five years are going to pay off in a certain in terms of 
better stock performance. Mm. Interesting. Keeping in mind, of course, and this is important, right? Uh, at the end of the day, things can go wrong. So you've got to have a sell discipline. And these stocks that we just talked about are part of a broader portfolio and should not be you know, viewed isolated. Right. Because Agilent, interestingly, they've got a bunch of China exposure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. But we're good with that yeah. because China continues to grow. Right? right. I mean, so uh, you've got to take the headlines out of investing. And that's where the growth has been for that company. If you look at the three-year growth in terms of revenue, they sell mm-hmm. about a billion to there, about yeah. 1.4 to the U.S., and the rest of the world is about $2.5 billion. So I want to ask you a, a question based on something you were saying right before we came on air, which is this whole idea of private valuations versus public valuations. <laughs> Uber. <We're>, Uber. <laughs> I mean, like we're seeing yeah. this in real time right now. How do you think about this? Because it feels like it's a really important yeah. moment right now. So, you know, we do have an investment banking unit, just for disclosure purposes, that is in a small and middle market uh, Did you space. guys buy into this? We did not, no. Okay. Um, and, and But we look at, at private equity investments, in particular late-stage yeah. l- private equity investments, as effectively just beta exposure, leveraged beta exposure. It is going to be very, very difficult when you've got so many unicorns, meaning private companies that are valued at a billion dollars plus, out there um, to make some significant outperformance, generate alpha by going into them. So we would actually advise clients against it to yeah. do late-stage well-known, well-publicized companies. Well, because one important thing to point out, and I think you would agree with this, is that late stage in the 2019 definition is very different from late stage in 1999. Exactly. The landscape has changed completely. And, you know, look, investment bankers, companies, CEOs, their financial advisors all know, hey, if you wait another... You yeah. know, or do another round of investing. You're going to cash. You get you know a higher valuation. You're going to make a lot more money, and the end investor may end up not doing so well. Keep in mind, there's long lockup periods and all of these things. Yeah. So what it trades at today isn't going to matter to the people who own stock before today right. for another six months. Right. Great point. Unless it continues to go lower. Yes. <laughs> well, they here. all want to see higher. Yes. <laughs> Oliver Porsche, thank you so much. Have a great weekend, Chief Market Strategist at Bruderman Asset Management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.